Hello, I'm Fran Kelly, and on ABC Radio National, it's my very great pleasure to welcome you to the 2009 Boyer Lectures, coming today from the Eugene Goosens Hall in the ABC Centre in Sydney. The annual Boyer Lecture Series started back in 1959, and it's named after the late Sir Richard Boyer, a former chairman of the ABC. Boyer lecturers are high-profile Australians coming from a broad range of disciplines and interests. They include people like former Reserve Bank Governor Ian McFarlane, Archbishop Dr Peter Jensen, historian Geoffrey Blaney, author David Malouf, former Prime Minister, then Head of the ACTU Bob Hawke, Aboriginal leader and lawyer Noel Pearson, Professor Graham Clark, Eva Cox, and of course, last year, prominent business leader Rupert Murdoch. Presenting the lectures in this, our 50th year, is General Peter Cosgrove, and his series is called A Very Australian Conversation. Over the next six weeks, he'll talk about national security, regional relationships, politics, leadership, even the family dog will get a mention, I understand. The son of a soldier, General Cosgrove, graduated from the Royal Military College Duntroon in 1968. He was sent to Malaysia as a lieutenant in the 1st Battalion, Royal Australian Regiment. During his next posting in Vietnam, he commanded an infantry platoon and was awarded the Military Cross for his performance and leadership during an assault on enemy positions. In 1999, Peter Cosgrove became a national figure as commander of the International Forces East Timor, otherwise known as Interfet. He was named the Australian of the Year in 2001. Following his achievements and the international respect he achieved in Timor, he was promoted to Chief of Army. He went on to be promoted again to General, and from there he was appointed Chief of the Defence Force. General Cosgrove retired from the Army in July 2005. After retirement from the armed forces, though, he kept going. General Cosgrove has accepted positions on a number of prominent boards, and after Cyclone Larry devastated far north Queensland, he was appointed chairman of Operation Recovery Task Force, and he led the successful recovery until completion in early 2007. I think you'd agree he is eminently placed to talk about national security. History seems to show, he says, that if the reason is significant enough... Australians will contemplate sending our men and women off to conflict, even though there is no direct and immediate threat to our sovereignty or safety. From the Eugene's Goosen Hall in Sydney, ladies and gentlemen, could you please welcome General Peter Cosgrove. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Several months ago, when the ABC invited me to be the 2009 Boyer Lecturer, after I got over the shock, I started to digest both the honour and the responsibility of what I'd accepted to do. It struck me that while I had had some quite diverse experiences in life, obviously mostly related to my time in uniform, I've always regarded myself as very much an Australian everyman by both background and inclination. Accordingly, I have entitled the lectures I will give within the Boyer series as a very Australian conversation. Today, in this first lecture, I will stick close to my knitting and address the subject of national security. In subsequent lectures, I'll speak on Australia's regional relationships, leadership the Australian way, 
and a lecture each on sociological changes over my lifetime and on those great political issues which I think resonate with the common man, that is me. I'll finish the series by gazing into a personal crystal ball to describe a future which we might aspire to and which will challenge our descendants. I'm honoured to join you today and I look forward to joining you again over the next five Sundays. I've spent most of a lifetime puzzling over national security. For much of my 40 years in uniform, I was learning about it. When I became more senior, I was still learning and also at the same time attempting to explain it to my interested countrymen and women. As a subject area, some might think of it as arcane and esoteric, but I disagree. It is founded in the informed and intuitive feelings of all Australians who notice their own circumstances. People don't need to read or study to be secure. They simply believe they are or they don't. National security can rarely be seen as an absolute state. It exists as a continuum of cost versus benefit. How much are we prepared to endure or pay or concede or surrender to achieve a particular state of security? National security can also be conceived to operate on two planes, perceptions of security and security measured empirically or objectively. If armed hostile men are kicking down your front door at home, then your perceptions of insecurity are likely to coincide with your empirically based security. Perceptions meet reality. There are also, though, two further measures we might apply. First, challenges to our security through affronts solely to our values. And secondly, physical threats to our safety and sovereignty. If we organise our thoughts this way on national security questions, it's attractive intellectually, but the reality is always more complex and frustrating. There are always going to be nuanced cases we could discuss, such as illegal immigration, but that's not all. For example, using this logical approach, I can mount a case that the Asian tsunami in late 2004 had security implications for Australia. As many would also argue, so do severe climate change effects in our region. You would find more than a few people who would even raise the security aspects of severe social issues, uh, such as with our remote Indigenous communities. All good debating stuff. Let's be more pragmatic. There is no greater nor more grave responsibility for the Australian government than providing for our national security. By and large, this responsibility has always been met very well, often with only murmured help from the generals. The government is routinely entrusted with oversighting and from time to time defining the national interest and acting effectively and promptly to protect it and to promote it. 
The people always demand to know the principles and the broad plans for any new action to foster national security. That great and cherished term of countless generations of bureaucrats, policy, applies to our national security. But it comes down to where do we stand on such and such and how will we do such and such? When we speak about the where do we stand aspect of our future national security, government has a dilemma. How do we describe the threats and pressures the government foresees in the future? Nobody has a crystal ball. Nostradamus hasn't taken a seat in the federal parliament. We look forward 20 to 30 years in these national security policy documents. Pointing to specific future threats can be limiting and damaging in near-term relationships and even self-fulfilling in the longer term. We wouldn't stand at our front fence and yell out to a neighbour, we're getting on okay now, but I might have to fight you sometime later. Australians accept this deliberate generality in our articulation of where we stand. There are, however, some durable characteristics to our security environment in the opaque future. First, we will still be a profound and engaged ally of the United States. And implicitly, that fact accepts the risks as well as the advantages of alliance. Secondly, that the defence forces in our region will continue to modernise and in some as yet unknown cases, in all likelihood, will dramatically expand. Lastly, many nations in our region will look to us for comfort, support, leadership and protection. All this due to our proximity, our reputation, our relationships and our capabilities. All of these are realities now and will continue to be so. But the cost of all this is immense. Every person who rails against the huge cost of a modern national security policy is perfectly correct. The costs are obscene. The only alternative is to wish away war from everywhere, of course, but especially from our own land, our own shores, our own neighbourhood. When a hundred years ago, local fire brigades changed from horse-drawn to motorised appliances. Many people were aghast at the cost, but didn't quibble if it meant that they were safer. Fundamentally, Australians accept that there is no cheap defence. Cheap defence equals high risk and low comfort. Governments in Australia can go forward confident that ordinary Australians implicitly accept that the future is uncertain. It cannot and sometimes should not be predicted, but that in security terms, the nation must move with the times. The US alliance, which we call ANZUS, is a centrepiece of our national security. Most alliances come down to a process of bonding or balancing or bandwagoning. 
as part of the British Empire in World War I, it might be said that even lacking a formal alliance, Australia was committed to following the mother country into her European war. Our familial bonds drew us inevitably and quickly into war at the side of the mother country, Britain. I noticed that recently some attention has been given to the thesis that our political leaders of the day saw that it was in Australia's high self-interest to respond so readily to the British declaration of war in 1914. Not just through familial bonds, that in effect it was to ensure that Australia retained a major ally in a still powerful Britain to face a potential threat from expansionist Japan. Even though at that stage, the Japanese were allies. It is interesting to consider that even as the Imperial Japanese Navy helped to escort our troops en route from Australia to Europe, subsequently diverted to Egypt, our political leadership were thinking well beyond a spiritual rush to join the Union Jack. If you accept this, then even the inherited wisdom of our bonding motivation to join the war may have shared equal billing with a keen sense of national security on a regional basis. So was it more than a case of king and country and don't forget we helped you? On the other hand, it is interesting to contemplate that if one used these factors to work out why we went off to World War II, when very obviously an even more powerful Japan was in a brooding and bellicose state, why then did we take such a huge number of our forces off to fight an air war in Europe and pitched land and maritime battles in North Africa and the Mediterranean? Perhaps here we can see that an apprehensive and war-experienced Australia, even contemplating potential hostilities against Japan, was nonetheless hugely affronted by Nazism and again concerned that the British Empire was very vulnerable against the Axis juggernaut. This created for us a deep complexity of coexisting motivations, great concern about an assault on our values, equating to the values of all free societies, and almost as great a concern about our immediate physical security, a Pacific war against Japan. We talk about wars of choice. This creates huge dilemmas for national political leaders in that a significant number of people will always believe that any choice is preferable rather than to go to war. Going back to my original remark concerning the continuum of national security, it is interesting to note that very few scholars and commentators on our commitment to World War II ever seriously criticised the decision to commit Australia to war in 1939 as opting for a war of choice and thus making the wrong choice. Therefore, history seems to show that if the reason is significant enough, 
then Australians will contemplate sending our men and women off to conflict, even though there is no direct and immediate threat to our sovereignty or safety. In my lifetime, all the wars or potential wars to which Australians have gone would come under the banner of wars of choice. Korea, the Malayan emergency, confrontation, Vietnam, Namibia, Somalia, Cambodia, East Timor, Afghanistan twice, and Iraq, were all such. In each case, the government of the day had great and differing pressures for and against commitment. In each case, the Australian public at the time has had a nuanced and subtly distinctive view of the necessity and the outcome of each, both in the immediate aftermath and with the hindsight of elapsed years. It's no good invoking about some and not others that we were acting as a good international citizen under the banner of the UN. I'm very sure that every government committing men and women to the list I just recited would be loudly proclaiming that we were acting as good international citizens. Simply polishing our apple with a Security Council or the General Assembly wouldn't quite seem to justify the cost or the risk. The UN is a great and vital organisation, but it is not our ally and it takes no responsibility for the lives of our men and women. Good international citizenry is very much in the eye and the self-regard of Australians. We appreciate the accolades of the world community, but it is a lesser factor in our motivation to leave our shores with military purpose. We did not help Indonesia after the Asian tsunami because it was a good look, but because it was right to do so. I think that most of our national interest decisions to deploy forces to other people's wars were based on that sliding scale of values and potential or realised threats to our physical security. I'm prepared to concede immediately, and maybe you will agree, that our commitments to Korea and subsequently to counter the insurgency in Malaya were shrewd assessments by the governments of the day that our values weighted against the obnoxious and evidently anti-democratic policies of communism and our security in the wider region were at risk. A war-weary Australia was also a war-experienced Australia and both our government and the community of nations well understood that we were capable of heavy lifting in a military sense. And so off we went to war, savage in Korea, less so in Malaya. To a large degree, our armed forces deployed on those operations disappeared off into a void of public information. Simply for most Australians, those conflicts were out of sight and out of mind. Even today, the Korea veterans call themselves Veterans of the Forgotten War. Veterans have not been so out of sight in the major deployments thereafter. 
I've tried to estimate the experience level and interests of the Radio National listening audience. And I think most of you will remember the years of our Vietnam commitment. Some of you will have fought there in the uniform of the Navy, Army or Air Force. Many more of you will have watched with fascination and concern as the conflict drew on and the possibilities of success grew less and less certain. While the features and the outcome of the war are pretty well known by my generation and to some degree by younger Australians, it's interesting to think about the issues of national security that were invoked in the decision to send our men and women off to that war. Just like in the case of World War II, and just like before the Afghanistan intervention in 2001, it's important to remember the mood and the convictions of the times. It's interesting to ponder whether the events of 9-11, Bali and the like, have wrought an enduring attitudinal change on Australians. But back to the 60s. Communist North Vietnam was sponsoring and very heavily supporting the insurgent movement in South Vietnam. All the post-colonial states of Indochina were fragile and vulnerable. The Soviet Union was strongly supporting uh, North Vietnam, thus guaranteeing that any conflict in Vietnam would have a Cold War ideological tinge. There were echoes of our earlier deployment to the far edges of our region for the Korean War when China supported the communist North Korea. But in Vietnam, there were major differences. The fig leaf of UN approval was absent. South Vietnam was less vehement and cohesive in its opposition to the insurgency and to the North than was the case between South and North Korea. Europe was either detached or opposed to the war in Vietnam. And this estrangement of world opinion helped erode the Allies' will to stick with the fight. So why did we go? Obviously, it was a balance of interests. The, the United States wanted our presence, and equally, we wanted the goodwill of the United States that our presence would create. Our Australian leadership hadn't missed the somewhat divergent attitude of the US towards Indonesia at around this time. Secondly, we probably ascribed considerable weight to the domino theory, which had the vulnerable states of Southeast Asia falling prey to communist regimes like a lineup of standing dominoes. Fundamentally, we also wanted to help the weak democratic state of South Vietnam from being annexed into a communist bloc. Yet objectively, most people would say that our efforts in South Vietnam, ours, those of the United States and her several other allies, failed to achieve the desired result. The insurgency, very heavily backed by the North, prevailed. To me, it is revisionism to claim that the fight in South Vietnam uh, somehow granted breathing space to the West. Was Vietnam winnable? 
Anything is winnable in war if the price you are prepared to pay and the damage you are prepared to inflict is high enough. We all remember that old quote, in order to save the village, we had to destroy it. If both South and North Vietnam had been left a smoking ruin, bombed and defoliated back into the Stone Age, a Pyrrhic victory of sorts might have been claimed. Yet, of course, that sort of victory was never on the cards. Populations caught up in war naturally wanted to stop. They want to live in peace, governed by themselves, safe, secure, and with the prospects of a better future. It seems to me that they are less concerned about ideological shouting matches than they are about the continuance and integrity of their culture and their values and their security. Simply in South Vietnam, the mass of people were never sufficiently mobilised or empowered or motivated to resist the insurgents, frequently members of their own community, or the invading northern troops. Now, while these were relatively being seen as foreigners, they didn't seem nearly as foreign as those of the US and its allies. Nonetheless, with all the brilliance of hindsight, it is possible to imagine an alternative end to that of 1975. Not through the application of more and more military force, either in the South or in the North, but rather through intensive and comprehensive social development in every sphere, from the government to the economy to health and education, while in every way respecting and elevating the people's culture, and while always affording local security. There is no guarantee that it would have worked, but it would have stood a better chance than the approach the Allies had. The Australian Army strove very hard in its time in Vietnam to bring about some of these outcomes in the province where we worked. But in the vast scale of the conflict, in the end, it made no difference. I suppose the lesson is that as part of our calculation of our national interest in going to war, we should look not only at the reasons why we go, but also at the prospects of success, the methods that will be used to get there, the price that we are prepared to pay, and the cost of failure. A number of years ago, when I was first appointed as Chief of the Defence Force, a journalist asked me what did I think of our commitment to the Vietnam War. In a brief reply, while stressing the gallantry and the effectiveness of our men and women on the ground, I said in hindsight it was probably a mistake. Even though I could understand why the government of the day committed us to go in the first place. You'll probably gather with my brilliant hindsight that I was reflecting on these further conundrums of what comprises the national interest. Now, in case you think from this review of that all-absorbing conflict of the 60s and 70s that I am mired in my own past 
Let's hurry forward to the new millennium. If we observed similarities between the shooting wars in which we have been involved since 2001, namely Afghanistan twice and Iraq in between, then we can review this matter of national interest through the prism of our commitment to South Vietnam. Both Iraq and Afghanistan are very remote from our shores. The situations which prompted military action in both cases were not responses to direct and immediate threats to our own sovereignty. Although the spectre of global terrorism illustrated by the events of 9-11 certainly created the most serious affront to the values component of our national security. Both situations were a response to a powerful call to arms by the United States in forming a coalition of the willing. In the case of Afghanistan, the first time, our treaty with the US, ANZUS, was invoked. It seemed to me at the time that our war aims were quite simple. Oust the regime that had played host to Al-Qaeda and to seek out and to destroy any Al-Qaeda terrorists who sought to stay in Afghanistan. That seemed to work pretty well. Then came the realisation which a vigilant and ever-present modern media brings home to the population of warring nations. The sort of prosaic sign you see in gift shops where mothers take sticky-fingered children and clumsy husbands. If you break it, you pay for it. Months or even weeks of war can lead to years of occupation, fundamentally a responsibility for the aftermath. In devastated nations such as Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan after World War II, the Allies occupying those countries were favoured by the terrible suffering and the war weariness of the populations and, crucially, their social cohesion. This, of course, is not the case in Afghanistan and probably never was. Many elements of Afghan society see foreign troops not so much as protecting their safety but affronting their culture and inhibiting their freedom. In this regard, it is hard to be shocked when they prefer their Taliban countrymen and co-religionists to an Aussie or a Dutchman or an American or a Brit. In this regard, and we could go on for quite a while about the reasons for going into Iraq, the aftermath period in Iraq, tragic and bloody though it was and occasionally still is, has a hopeful horizon. Perhaps it is the war weariness and cohesiveness factors, and perhaps it is also better techniques within the occupation. In any event, Iraq is more promising than Afghanistan. In all forms of conflict, the law of unintended consequences is at play. It is hugely important in examining the national interest involved in any conflict we might become involved in to predict and evaluate all the consequences, including those unintended, but probable or possible. For example, 
The volatility and vulnerability of Pakistan, no doubt, is an unintended outcome to the continuing strife in Afghanistan. The conflict continues to provide, as did Iraq for a number of years, a battleground for the minds of Muslims across the world. I think we can confidently say we are losing this battle. It is possible another unintended consequence of both Iraq and Afghanistan has been the urge of Iran to seek a preeminent or at least invulnerable role in the region through its nuclear program. No reasonable person would have happily contemplated these possibilities. None of this is to say that Australia should not be in Afghanistan because it meets no national interest. Australians decided somewhat intuitively in the weeks following 9-11 that there should be no sanctuary for Al-Qaeda and those who would emulate that group. Passivity would have been a vast affront to our values and self-worth. The same instincts that had us rushing off to Aceh, Samoa, Tonga and East Timor to help others and to Bali to bring home our fellow Australians were invoked by what happened. Yet we are troubled by the protracted, seemingly intractable violence in Afghanistan. Success is yet only in the imagination and in prayers. Our Prime Minister wants our voice to be heard in planning the way ahead. I emphatically agree with him. Nobody would dare complain if we were cogent and crystal clear about what will constitute success and how we will get there. Our men and women in uniform pay for that right every day. We are a loyal friend accompanying others in Afghanistan because it is right. But our presence is not and never has been unconditional. In Vietnam, our voice was not heard. It is in our national interest that it is heard among our allies at this crucial time in Afghanistan. Ladies and gentlemen, I am realistic enough to know that national security is not a breakfast table topic in all but a few Australian homes, not even mine. Far better to be reflecting on the day-to-day -day events and challenges of life, the sport, the family, the dog, the cat, the garden. Australia, in a relative sense, remains more secure and safe than most countries in the world. But security, like health, happiness and good looks, is ephemeral. It consumes vast amounts of our treasure, but it puts at risk on a daily basis that most precious part, our sons and daughters. We must have a stake not just in where and why they pass into harm's way, but when and why they can return home. It's in the national interest. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Populations caught up in war naturally wanted to stop. They want to live in peace, governed by themselves, safe, secure, and with the prospects of a better future.
They're less concerned about ideological shouting matches than they are about the continuance and integrity of their culture, their values and their security. On ABC Radio National, that was General Peter Cosgrove delivering National Security at the Breakfast Table, the first of this year's Boyer Lecture Series, which he has called A Very Australian Conversation. He delivered it in the Eugene Goosens Hall here at the ABC Centre in Sydney. You can, of course, hear that lecture again, read the transcript or write a comment about it by going to our webpage at abc.net.au slash rn slash Boyer Lectures. Next week in the Boyer Lectures, Australia's regional relationships. The USA may be our closest ally, but it's not our nearest neighbour and how we interact with the countries closest to us will determine our challenges and our opportunities for the future. Australia calling. Australia calling the world. In December 1939, Prime Minister Robert Menzies declared Radio Australia on the air. The time has come to speak for ourselves. In 2009, the international service of the ABC is a vibrant presence online and on FM stations in 16 cities through Asia and the Pacific. Connect Asia. Asia Pacific. And internationally, we're heard on Radio Australia. We've been talking with our neighbours for 70 years.